Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we complete our series, Living the Truth Today, a study in 1 Timothy, with a message titled, You Can Take It With You. So turning your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verses 17 to 21, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. A number of years ago, while on sabbatical, my wife Kathy and I visited Egypt, which included, you know, for us, the Great Pyramids of Giza, also further south up the Nile to the Valley of the Kings. Everything to the east of the Nile was designated as the great burial sites of the great pharaohs of Egypt. The tombs were elaborate, and inside the tombs were placed the wealth of the pharaohs. Now, of course, from a historical perspective, the great tragedy is that grave robbers stole all the wealth of the pharaohs out of the tombs. But King Tut's tomb in the Valley of the Kings had not been discovered by the grave robbers, and for the first time, it could be seen for the wealth it had. The tomb contained literally thousands of pounds of gold and was used for his grave furniture and his now famous mummy mask. His inner coffin alone contained over 3,000 pounds of gold, and the sacred obelisks also are all covered with gold. The picture is one of wealth and lavishness that in our terms seems almost incomprehensible. So why this wealth on the inside of the tombs? And the answer seems to have been that the pharaohs had need of it in the next life. But of course, years later, the body was still there. The spirit had long since departed and the wealth was left for thieves. You know, if there's one lesson we should learn is that we can't take it with us. We will in this life accumulate wealth, some very little, some much, but we are destined to lose it all. He who dies with the most toys, well, he dies, takes nothing with him. There's never a truck full of our goods behind the funeral coach. We brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing out. So why then my title for the message today? Is it really true that we can take riches with us? I hope that what we read today will be fascinating because it seems we have a word from Paul that we can take it with us. I'm reading 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 21. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. So let's start with a word to the rich. And if this passage hadn't been included at the end of 1 Timothy, we might have gotten the wrong idea. I mean, after all, chapter 6 has already told us to be aware that we are not to desire to become rich. And you might be excused for thinking that the Bible opposes the accumulation of wealth. But if you were careful, you will notice that it only opposes the desire to get rich. Now, before we go further, let's ask the question, what is rich? And one way of defining that is to judge wealth in relation to the world. There are about one quarter of the world's population who live on about, you know, $1.25 a day. It also means that they don't have the access to the basics, which are sufficient food and drinkable water, adequate shelter. I mean, never mind access to education and health care. You know, in terms of this, we in the West are wealthy beyond even the furthest reaches of people's imaginations. A more popular definition, 
We judge wealth by using the standard of those people who live around us. If I rent a 900-square-foot apartment, someone else owns a 7,000-square-foot house overlooking the water, I'm not rich. I drive a 12-year-old compact car. They drive a brand-new luxury SUV. Therefore, I'm not rich. They are. But before you dismiss this, please understand that the standards around us form for us the standard of rich and poor. Now, in the church in Ephesus, a great many people would not have fit into the rich category. We've already seen in chapter 5 that the church had to deal with the issue of widows. Most of them were poor. Added to that in chapter 6, we also saw that the church had slaves. If you were an indentured slave, you were in slavery until your debt was paid off, which meant that you had nothing. But there were some who were well off, and they were believers, and Paul wants to address them. So first of all, he says, purchase humility. So he tells the rich not to be haughty. Now that term haughty meant that they would feel tempted to think of themselves as better than those who hadn't attained to their level of income. Now, I want to speak about that for just a moment. See, in our culture, as well as in many other cultures, including the culture in which Paul lived, the rich were often the employers. See, in New Testament times, they had a household, which means they had an extended farm, or that they produced some product in which they employed slaves and freedmen. You know, in our day, the wealthy are often entrepreneurs whose businesses have grown, and they've opened up more locations. They've hired a great many people. And when wealthy individuals are converted, they often make excellent directors in church affairs. They simply know how to organize and lead people. But here's where the problem develops. Having become used to directing and overseeing the lives of others, they continue to do it in the church, giving the church the reputation that the wealthy run things and that we don't have a brotherhood after all. And in the meantime, the rich do foster the idea that their influence is greater than the rest of us, that money even buys you spiritual privilege and prestige. So how does one break that trap? Well, the first thing that the wealthy need to do is purchase humility. So how do they do that? I think here the attitude of Jesus that's described in Philippians 2 is helpful. Chapter 2, 6, and 7 describes Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. And I think from that passage, I can offer a bit of counsel. If you're wealthy and have people who you employ, you should use your gifts to lead. But you should also find some area of menial service where you're required to take direction from someone else, some area of ministry where you'll become a foot washer. Purchase humility. Second, you need to recognize genuine wealth. Verse 17 warns against putting your hope in the uncertainty of riches. And I love the term, uncertainty. It means to look forward without any confidence. Your wealth should give you no confidence in the future, none at all. Wealth is seductive, creates the illusion of safety and security. Once an individual gets entangled in that mindset, there are times when the only solution is to give it away, as Jesus demanded of the rich young ruler who trusted in his riches. The fact remains that you can't trust both God and money. Jesus said so in Luke 16, verse 13. So if after an economic downturn or a reversal in your financial fortunes, you say, well, nothing's really changed. I trusted in God then. I trusted him now. But if you can't say that because it's not true for you, you need to purchase humility 
and you need to give a lot more money away. The wealth is always in God. He gives and he takes away at his pleasure. That's why Job said, blessed be the name of the Lord. So we have had two words for the rich, purchase humility and train yourself in the lessons of faith, recognize genuine wealth. But how do we do that? Practically, how does that work? Well, the answer is become a giver, verse 18. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And interestingly enough, you know, that verse does not lead with the giving of finances, but the giving away of oneself. You know, what is the most valuable is to have a servant's heart. And I hope you see what Paul's up to here. He's actually commanding the rich to be rich. He means to look for areas of service, to give oneself in ministry, ministry that's meaningful. And in the end, Paul is aware that giving money is a part of that. And it is at this point we've come back to God's basic order regarding money. God wants not only for us to share our lives, but also to share our money. So let me give you a biblical perspective on giving. Four things. Here's the first. We should give regularly. And in the Jewish world, the practice was that every time you came to worship, one had a gift. And when King David was offering a special sacrifice to the Lord, you'll remember that, there was a plague in the city and David would sacrifice to stop the plague. The only place to sacrifice was on a hill that was owned by a man by the name of Arowana the Jebusite. And when King David came to this man named Arowana for the plot of ground where he would offer the sacrifice, Arowana stepped forward and he volunteered to give the site to David for free. Come, he said, build your altar. And David stops him in his tracks. He will have none of that. David says to Arowana, I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. In other words, if I am to worship or to sacrifice or to call on the name of the Lord, every act of worship will be a costly one. It will come with an act of giving. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315. Or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult. The early church practiced giving. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. In other words, Paul wanted to get away from special appeals for funds 
and rather favored the Jewish practice of giving regularly. Second, we should give proportionally, that is, proportion to our income. And the basic Christian principle regarding proportional giving is the principle of the tithe. All believers give 10% of their income, and that may surprise some of us, but it goes all the way back to Genesis. You remember that Abel gave the first fruit of his produce, but Cain gave some of the things that were left over. Abel's gift was accepted, Cain's was rejected. You remember that Abraham gave a tithe to King Melchizedek, the forerunner in the Bible of the Messiah. You remember that in the law, tithing was expected as a principle. It's taught all the way through the Old Testament up to the last book, the book of Malachi. In fact, to withhold tithes was considered an affront against God. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus actually affirms that practice. Listen to Luke 11:42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. See, the Pharisees were meticulous about tithing down to the herbs that they had. Jesus affirmed that this was to have been done. So the point is clear and unmistakable. Third, we should give systematically. Again, the biblical principle is the principle of first fruits, which I've alluded to. In other words, we don't wait to see if we will live off our paycheck. We give the tithe off the very front at the beginning. You know, Kathy and I made a principle of that in our lives years ago. We decided that whenever we got paid, we'd give right off the front without knowing whether we had enough in the end of the month. So giving is regular, it's proportional, it's systematic, and it's a standard Christian teaching. And this kind of an attitude towards money fosters our heart dependence on God. Some of you need to begin with that and make a commitment to the Lord. It's a part of basic Christian discipleship. But let me tell you a fourth principle. We should allow for free will giving as well. Think of it above and beyond the tithe. It's exactly what Paul has in mind here. There are those whose finances have increased significantly, and Paul invites them not just to tithe. You see, that's assumed. He invites them to give generously. And there are those who shouldn't think in terms of 10%, but 20% and a lot more. See, these are God's words to the rich. Purchase humility. Recognize genuine wealth. Learn to give well beyond the tithe. See, up till now, all this has been about law and duty. We've still not yet arrived to the realm of faith. So Paul now takes us to the next stage. He wants us to start an eternal savings plan. Remember I said, you can take it with you? So here's the principle. You can't be like the pharaohs who tried to drag their wealth along into eternity with them. But you can take it with you, but you have to send it on ahead. Notice, as we're generous and ready to share, verse 19 says, thus storing up treasure for themselves. I know some of you are going to say, you're tricking me, but I didn't. You'll have to decide whether or not you actually believe this, and then you'll adjust accordingly. This is a matter completely and entirely of faith. Now, before I go further, I'd like to read what John Kelvin said about it. He said, our generosity hardly deserves to be taken into account by God. We are so far from giving all we should. But God accepts our services such as they are and bestows on them the reward they do not deserve. See, it looks this way. If you invest your money here in a bank, you'll get an interest rate. If you invest in the world to come, that poor interest rate here is going to look like a paltry sum indeed. God wants to bless you, and he's waiting for every opportunity to do so. 
but he does want you to exercise your faith. There is an investment program that you'll only pass on ahead. If you say, God, I believe that I can invest now in the life to come. Trust God, give. God will pour more grace than you'll be able to handle, and you'll have sent it on ahead. Now, I need to urge you in something else. You need to get in on that eternal savings plan right now. See, I know this. If every Christian in this country simply tithed, we'd have to send more missionaries and build more churches and set up more housing for the poor and the refugees and raise up more pastors, expand our ministries all over the world. Please forgive me. I have no intention to incite guilt. Quite the opposite. My intention is different. Look again at the last half of verse 19 so that you may take hold of the life that is truly life. Once you get into the giving mode, you'll not only be investing in eternity, but you'll finally understand that, as Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Watching the gospel go forward, blessing the poor, sending out pastors and missionaries, strengthening local churches. Now, now you're living. You've become a partner in the gospel. You're involved in something that matters. Then verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's possible to look at verse 20 and think Paul is changing the subject now, but I don't think so. The word deposit, that's a banking term. And here Paul says to Timothy, something has already been deposited into your account. You didn't even put in a small amount. All of it was by the gracious hand of God. It was placed into your account. And as we'll see, the value of what was placed into Timothy's account, it's far more than all the treasures of this world. But Timothy is called upon to do something with it. He's to guard it. He's to keep it safe. He's to make sure that no one can pervert it or ruin it. So what's Paul talking about? We've come again to the theme of this letter. Paul and the other apostles have been given a revelation of the truth of the gospel. Timothy is the next generation after the apostles, and he's received the truth of the gospel from the apostles as a deposit. His job is to guard the deposit. It was Leo the Great who was Bishop of Rome from the years A.D. 440 to 461. He was preaching on this very verse, and he put it this way, that which is committed to thee, not that which is invented by thee, that which thou hast received, not that which thou hast devised, a thing not of wit, but of learning, not of private assumption, but of public tradition, a thing brought to thee, not brought forth of thee, wherein thou must not be the author, but a keeper, not a leader, but a follower. Keep the deposit. I love that quote. And that's the task of all faithful leaders. In fact, that's how you can tell a faithful leader from an unfaithful one. The unfaithful one comes up with new ideas. The faithful one is convinced that the ideas in the book, the Bible, is to be treasured, defended, explained, and taught to each new generation. So Paul acknowledges that the rich in this world have a sacred obligation, but the rich in spiritual leadership and training have an even greater trust. And in that, we will want to avoid counterfeit currency. Look at verse 20b to 21. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. When I look at all the best-selling books in the Christian market today, I find that about 10 to 20% of them are good and accurately express various Christian themes. But when I look at the great Christian classics of the past, those that have been around for a long time, 80 to 90% of them are very good. So why is that? I mean, were they just more spiritual than we are? 
And here's the answer. No, they weren't. But rather, all the nonsense and the fluff, it didn't stand the test of time. It simply went away. No one remembered all the nonsense, but the good stuff, that stood the test of time, and that has remained. The same is true of Christian teaching and ministry today. Timothy is being warned, stay away from irreverent babble. Stay away from the constant speaking that has no eternal worth. Avoid the counterfeit and go to the true. Now let me get back to a special command that goes out to the rich. Those who are rich in this present world and are believers in Christ have a sacred obligation to use their wealth to make sure that all the resources are available so that the teaching of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel and the training of the next generation continues to happen. What a sacred obligation to use your wealth today to make sure that the sacred trust, the sacred deposit is kept safe so that it remains there for another generation. We end 1 Timothy with four words. Grace be with you. See, those words sum up the entire book. Count on grace. Count on God. Avoid false teachers. Get true teachers. Avoid false use of money. Cling to the real value of eternal things. Grace be to you. When we stand before God, it will be grace that is all that matters. So if we want it then, cling to it now. Count on God and nothing else. Grace be with you. Thanks so much, John, for a great message and a great series. Let me conclude with this question. Is there a unique role for those who have been so blessed financially in respect to the kingdom of God? Yeah, we we need to not denigrate the rich. Uh, We need to recognize that God places us into the various positions in life for a good reason. So rather than feeling guilty about being rich, or for those of us who aren't, looking with a, you know, the jaundiced eye at those who have much, uh, we need to be encouraging the rich to really grab a hold of the mission that God has given them. I mean, always a part of that is giving. That can feel like a burden to the rich because they always wonder, I mean, who's going to knock on my door next and ask for something? But that's a part of what God has given you to do. Uh, missionaries can be sent, educational institutions can be built, churches can be blessed, uh, new visions can be given because of the resources that they offer. It's your goal in life to do this. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Neufeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust 
in important Bible teaching resources like Heaven and Hell.